everybody, welcome for the weekend film tech for June 20th, 2019. I'm not supposed to say my birthday, it's official date on the internet, but I turned 40 this week. You know, because of uh, identity theft and whatnot. This week in the weekend film tech, we're covering a new release from Avid Media Composer, Edelkrone going for 3D printing. This company that I didn't even know about called Digi Australia reached out, and I want to talk about them. And then there was no Hey Professor question again this week, so we're going to keep going with the Professor Hey, where I tell you what I want, and I, I want to continue part one from last week with a continuing theory for what I would like to see in part two this week. All that on the Week in Film Tech. Top story this week, Avid Media Composers shipped on June 20th, today, their complete redesign of the Media Composer interface, along with a whole bunch of other new tools. So why is this so interesting? First off, it's Avid is one of those weird things where it's actually an incredibly dominant market force, but you keep running into people who think no one uses it anymore. Like, you'll regularly be in a conversation with someone and you'll mention Avid, and they'll be like, the people still do that? And it's like, actually, I, I, I have no idea what the actual numbers are. Avid is still very dominant at the network level. You still see huge amounts of Avid in the documentary space, uh, network TV shows. All of these major players are still using a lot of Avid. Now, the reason why you will occasionally run into people who are like, people who are still running Avid is because Avid was the main player in the late 90s. You would hear filmmakers in the late 90s talking about cutting digital for the first time and you know someone would ask them like oh are you considering cutting on the avid and they would say oh i don't know how i feel about the avid it was never cutting digitally cutting digitally and avid meant the same thing there for a minute it was everywhere uh of course what changed that was final cut pro uh apple and final cut pro which what, they didn't even originally develop they bought it from macromedia uh they developed into a real amazing platform where you started to see Major filmmakers cutting in Final Cut Pro, every indie filmmaker cutting in Final Cut Pro. And they did that primarily by making the user interface very easy and intuitive. Intuitive is one of those really annoying words when you talk about software design because, like, you know, none of this is intuitive. We're interacting with these screens and we're moving these things around. So this phrase intuitive that shows up a lot of times, just it, a better way of saying it means naturally easy and more in line with other tools you already use. Right, Because if you think about it, there's a whole host of skills we've already learned from other applications we use about how files are, are manipulated, about how interfaces work. And once we've learned those in one tool set, it'll feel very intuitive in another tool set, which means that if you learn Media Composer first, Media Composer is still going to feel very intuitive to you. However, Final Cut, and then once Final Cut sort of stumbled a little bit, Premiere... They both use a lot of interface design elements that are very common in other Apple and Adobe products. So they felt very intuitive to people who were already used to other Apple products and other Adobe products. And then, I'm just going to be honest, there were a couple things they did that were a little easier. There's still some stuff about the way the timeline works in Media Composer where Media Composer is still very keyboard driven because they want you to learn the keyboard shortcuts and get fast. And... While well, you can get very fast with Premiere and Final Cut with all of the shortcuts, I know a lot of people who do everything with the mouse. I know big-time people who do everything with the mouse. I also know big-time people who do everything with the mouse in Media Composer. Uh, I learned editing from this guy, Bob Jones, uh, one of three generations of Academy Award winners uh, in editing. Um, one of, like, two families, them and the Houstons, I think, are the two families who have three generations of Academy Award winners. And, you know, he was really proud of saying on the first day of class where he's like, I know how to do six things in the Avid. I sit there with a mouse. Um, editing is not about 
speed. Editing is about thought. And uh, I really liked that. Bob Jones, you're great. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's now obviously that is a studio narrative universe where, you know, the, in the blink of the eye, I think they did the average. And at the end of Apocalypse Now, they uh, Walter Murch realized that he, on average, made about one and a half edits a day. Now, of course, to make that into one and a half edit, you would have made 50 edits as you tried all these different things. But it's uh, it's about thinking. It's about making choices. It's about how you structure things. Now, when I'm working in a corporate video or, you know, fast turnaround video tutorial or something like that, speed actually really does matter. You don't want to spend a full day editing a three-minute corporate thing that you should be able to cut in an hour. So learning things like shortcuts, learning all of that is a very popular thing to do. Which is all to say, because of its quote-unquote intuitive interface... Final Cut took off, and then when Final Cut stumbled, Premiere's taken off, and now the market really is Resolve, Premiere, Final Cut, and Media Composer. Those four are largely competing for the editing space. And Media Composer has sort of stubbornly hung on to a lot of UI, user interface conventions, from the 90s. Now, you can change everything about the Media Composer interface. You will sit down on a Media Composer, and, and like with two simple tweaks, like making everything black and changing the typeface, it can look super modern. And you will regularly be in an edit session where it looks super modern. But Media Composer has always sort of had a skew towards supporting existing users, which, like, fair, respectable, um, you know, as opposed to a lot of software designers that are all like, new users, new users, new users. We always want to grow. Media Composer has always been like, we want to keep growing, but we also really need to pay attention to our existing users. They've even brought back features. They've killed a feature and then their existing users were so mad they brought it back. Phrase find and script sync. It's a different philosophy. It's a really respectable philosophy. It's definitely one I get. Media Composer probably has the biggest array of non-tech nerd users. By which I mean people who don't really play with computers on the weekend, who don't want to build their own website, who are like, I'm a motion picture editor. Probably the vast majority of people who started on a flatbed moved to an Avid. And these are folks who got trained on a piece of software once want to use that piece of software, want it to keep using without changing. They don't want to have to learn new things all the time. They just want to keep doing it exactly the way they've been doing it. Which, again, fair. Like, I like learning new things. That is a nerd thing about me. I love playing with new cameras. I got to shoot with the LXLF last week. It was super exciting. Like, I am nerd. Not everyone nerd. Some people are just like, I do my thing. And so Media Composer has always been very good at changing the UI very slowly, being very methodical, not changing things in midstream, very stable. And the things about that is, even to this day, the default Media Composer installation, if I just randomly install Media Composer, it looks like Bill Clinton's president. Like, the color scheme and the UI and the layout and everything, it just doesn't feel very modern. You know, whereas, like, the default Premiere, default Resolve, default Final Cut 10. It feels like 2019, 2020, 2021. It feels like modern technology doing stuff. Now, under the hood, Avid has kept updating, and you can have 16K timelines, and they do phrase find and script sync. And I keep mentioning those tools because those are the two of the tools where, like, it's such a good example of Avid being, like, a really media-forward, uh, very savvy company, unafraid of technologically innovating. Um, and Media Composer still handled shared media the best. Now, I'm getting excited about where Resolve is going with shared media. Uh, I think the combination of, like, the right shared database on Resolve, well-maintained system, working with Frame.io for the web, I think that actually Resolve could be coming for Media Composer, but they have nowhere near the market share. And, you know, 
if I'm in P- BC and I've, you know, I'm doing the Olympics and there's 400 editors and I'm flying them all somewhere and I know they all know Media Composer and there's a whole robust certification system so I can know that the engineers are certified and I can set up a Nexus the same way I've been doing for 20 years and it all just works. That client's not going to change anytime soon. Resolve, I think, is going to gain a lot of market share in like little indie houses, but I don't think they're really coming for the big networks yet. Although, you know, you never know. These, uh, they could have a really aggressive salesperson who can talk a network into switching, and I would understand why the network was willing to do that. And you can also get Blackmagic certified, which big corporations find that comforting. If you're a little freelancer certifications, you, you can take them or leave them. But, uh, you know, I get them all because I work for the City University of New York, and City New York, University of New York loves paperwork. You see the same thing at the big corporations. Those certifications are really about corporate comfort. So... Media Composer, stable, great with shared media, great with teams, great with I want 20 people cutting the same pile of footage as quickly as possible, great with all of that. And on June 20th, they're releasing a complete revision to their user interface. They've built Media Composer again straight up from scratch. Uh, It is a full 32-bit end-to-end processing engine, a 32-bit floating-point processing engine. It is a complete UI redesign. There are now task-based layouts. There's all sorts of exciting stuff. It's huge for a media composer to do this. Now, it's still media composer, which means if you tweak it a little bit, you can get your old original comfortable layout back. Um, But it is a really exciting sign that media composer is understanding that, I mean, they're never going to stop really caring about their existing users because they know that they make a lot of their money on their existing users. They already have a lot of the big ones. They don't have to try and win over the big ones. They've got them. But this is a really aggressive push combined with Media Composer First, which is free software, which I have my issues with, but also a very affordable price point for their subscription services. They are really coming at growth. They're really... I wonder if they did some internal numbers and they wondered if their average age skewed a little high. Like, I would guess the average age of Funnel Cut 10 users is like 27 because there's so many 18-year-olds use it. I would guess Premiere is probably around 30. I would guess Media Composer is like 34 or something, and that's really high in software and post-production motion pictures. These are guesses. I have no data on any of these numbers. I'm making shit up. This is a real concerted effort on Media Composer's part to aggressively address some criticism on their slowness to resolve, to uh, evolve their user interface, and to really uh, keep up with what we're seeing from all of the others. Now... There were pre-saved window layouts before, right? There was a color grading layout. There were other layouts. You could go up to your window layout and and you could save your own. This isn't new, but a redesign, a, a complete redesign, a complete modernization is something that I think is really interesting and exciting and something that we should really be uh, applauding Media Composer for. It is something they've taken a lot of criticism about, their slowness to evolve here, and I think that's really exciting. Um, they're also launching a fluid timeline. Uh which will be interesting. Uh, they've always had actually a pretty good timeline in terms of the ability to keep playing while you're zooming in and out and while you're making changes and stuff like that. So um, I don't think that's a big dramatic change for them. But then the other thing is a 32-bit uh, floating point pipeline. So basically what 32-bit floating point means is that it's going to do all image processing at 32-bit floating point. Floating point means that it's got a certain amount of points it can have and you can have those points before or after the dots. You can have like uh, one point and then eight zeros, or you can have point zero 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 one. There's uh, or nine point. So there's a uh, a larger within the same amount of data. There's a tremendous amount of uh, gradations that can be stored. What 
floating point tends to mean in post-production pipelines is that as you compound changes to a clip, it shouldn't be lossy. So for instance, let's say I take a clip and I'm going to leave LUTs out of this actually because LUTs are lossy themselves. So my, my first idea of an example was I'm going to take all the clips in a bin and add a LUT, which is one thing that like Media Composer lets you really easily do. Um, there's many nice things about Media Composer and the way in which media is organized in bins is nice. But LUTs are actually not the perfect example. Let's say an image transform, like let's say I'm going to take all the shots in a bin and I'm going to apply a color corrector to them that I've already built. And that color corrector is going to uh, really brighten it up. And so on some of the dark shots is fine and some of the bright shots it clips out the sky. It'll happen. Now, if I add another color corrector to bring down on that one individual shot, I want to leave the master color corrector on because in addition to the brightness and contrast as some color casts for this whole scene flashbacks, I want to put another color corrector on top of that. With 32-bit floating point, if I darken down that color corrector, I should get my sky back, which doesn't always happen in an NLE. Any pro professional color grading program, I go into Resolve, I go into Baselight, anything like that should usually do that. But it's one of the perks of 32-bit floating point that you're going to have that like non-destructive nature in your as you start to stack up effects. So that'll be really cool. It is nice that they're doing end-to-end 32-bit floating point. Obviously, there will be things you still can't get back. LUTs will still, you know, whatever is within the LUT will get affected. Whatever's out the LUT will usually get clipped traditionally. Also, if I bring in a raw shot and then I use the internal transcoder to a DNX uh, 36 shot or something... Applying a color corrector to the DNX 36 shot, I'm going to be clipping out stuff and it's not relinking back to the raw because Media Composer wouldn't like to do that. But it's still a huge improvement. So it's super exciting that we're going to have up to 16K resolutions, although realistically, I still think you should be doing 2K or 8K, uh, 4K with Media Composer. I think you're being much happier there. And we're going to see 32-bit uh, float processing and we're going to see a major revision in their UI. And that is all super exciting for Media Composer. And that launches today. So, folks, go play with it. I'm going to go play with it because I'm very curious about it, and we will talk about it more in the future and on the Internet. All right. Next up, Edelkrone has launched Ortok, or Ortake. I'm going to go Ortok. And uh, Ortok is Edelkrone's full 3D printing platform, and they've launched it with their Flex Tilt uh, little device. So what's interesting about this? So first off, if you don't know Edelkrone, Edelkrone makes little... I say little because they're not really designed for, like, red cameras. They're really designed for, like, the DSLR marketplace cameras. They make a very popular motorized slider that's very affordable but cool. They also make little pan and tilt heads. And the Flex Tilt is this really cool head they make. It folds flat. So, it like, folds really small. But you can then, like, pop it upright and get, like, six inches more out of height. So if you're on a little slider and you want a little extra height or a little bit of pan and tilt, you can, you've got that all built in the head but it stores really compactly. It's it's one of those weird little things that doesn't seem like an essential part of the package, but then once you see it in action, you're like, oh, I can totally see that being really useful. Like, like I want to be able to, to tilt the camera 90 degrees straight down. This is going to let you do that, but still have the full pan and tilt flexibilities of the head available to you. It weirdly reminds me a little bit, if you've ever worked with a Pana head, a Pana head has sort of like a, a an extra bit of tilt built into it that you can pop up which is really nice. And this is sort of similar to that, but like in the indie space. Flex Tilt came out three years ago in 2016. Uh, you see them around. It's a popular little thing. It's like a fun toy. The Ortac platform is their brand new thing. And basically what it means is an SDL file is like, you know, the file format for 3D printing. And you buy an SDL file 
and the non-3D printable hardware. And the STL file is a design for all of the printable parts. So like 95% of it, you can print at home. And then there's parts, and it's usually like bolts and bushings and things like that, that like would be very difficult to 3D print at home. They might not have the stress tolerance you need, or the shape would be too complicated, uh, or something like that. And it's this really interesting concept. And the reason why I wanted to talk about it is, you know, there is a large open source marketplace for like cool film accessories that you can 3D print at home. However, there's limits to stuff you could 3D print. I mean, you could 3D print your rods and rails if you felt like it, although they probably wouldn't be as... uh, strong as like good carbon fiber rods but a lot of the little 3d printable accessories you see are like oh it's an attachment you put on an end of an hdmi cord so it keeps it straighter in the socket of your camera useful little thingamajigs that it's like one piece of plastic that you clip on that kind of thing this is really interesting because it's a much more useful tool it is a tool that's being professionally sold where like you can buy the edelchrome version but you can also buy the plans and the hardware. And what's interesting to me about it especially is that it's the combination of the plans and hardware. The worry we always have with selling the plans for these kind of things is piracy. Like if I were Edelcrone, I would be worried that you're going to sell the plans once and then someone's going to crack the SDL and put it up on some website and then everybody else who wants one is just going to download it and print it and Edelcrone gets nothing for all the work of design they did. And design work is real work. They had to They had to build prototypes internally. They had to test it to make sure it would make your camera safe. You don't want to have something where it's weighted so weird that your camera just falls off. So it's super cool that they're even willing to get public with the STL. But I think they found this really nice hybrid place where there is still physical hardware for them to buy. And it's $30, and the hardware itself is probably $5 worth of hardware. So you're paying for the design. But I think it's a really nice sweet spot where you're like, oh, $30 and then whatever filament costs are if I have a 3D printer. Or, I mean... Frankly, a lot of people don't own 3D printers, but have free access to it through public libraries or tech shares in their neighborhoods, all sorts of stuff. It's like getting increasingly common that you can have access somehow to a 3D printer by combining that 3D printing access with the hardware that is being sold by Edelcrone. I think it's sort of a nice combination of multiple things coming together. I think it's an interesting business model for Edelcrone. I hope that we see some other things come out. Ortac, I think it's useful for filmmakers. I also think that there's like two big ways in which this is going to make the device more customizable. I mean, first off is color. You can order pretty much any color filament. Filament is what you feed into most 3D printers in order to print the thing. So you know, in, even in the advertising for Edelkron, it's like rainbow colors for the flex tilt for Mortac. And, you know, it really does mean you can make it whatever color you want, which is great. Like if you and your friend both have one, they won't both be the same color and you could brand it to your company. You can do all sorts of that stuff. But I also think you're going to be able to take this STL and you're going to be able to bring it into programs that manipulate 3D shapes and you're going to be able to customize it. Now, whether that means stamping your name, like debossing your name into it or... Maybe even having a specific application where you're like, oh, I'm doing this specific kind of shot with this specific kind of camera, and I'm going to tweak it this way. Because remember, everything you ever see that's been designed is being designed to fit a wide spectrum of applications. So obviously not an infinite spectrum. Like I'm the when they're building the Flex Tilt, they're not designing it to hold a Panaflex Millennium. That's outside the weight range. But within their weight range, they're saying, all right, you, you need to be able to hold a Panasonic GH5 and a Canon 5D Mark IV vastly different cameras, vastly different weights. One's way heavier, one's tiny. And because of that, they have to meld certain things to be safe enough to do both. But let's say that you're out and you're shooting something specifically on a GoPro Hero 5, or, I mean, let's be honest, the Osmo Action is pretty exciting and people are doing that. And so you want 
a specific thing out of the flex tilt, you want it to go to a certain angle or twist a certain way. They couldn't design the flex tilt to do that and also hold the 5D Mark IV, but maybe perfectly safely, you can customize the STLs that came with the original design to do the thing you want to do with your tiny little camera. And it's safe to do it because the camera is so small. So individual users are going to have individual use cases that's going to make it really fun to customize. I personally hope that Ortec is something that Edelkron is able to roll out with a lot of their products. I also am really hoping that we see other manufacturers sort of see the lead on this, where they're like, oh, by having a little bit of hardware, we're actually going to get people to purchase. It's going to pay for the design work. And then we're going to offer a greater amount of flexibility to the end users. I mean, the other perks for Edelkron are these are going to be physically smaller packages, so it's going to be cheaper to store. If they're paying for warehousing, it's going to be cheaper to ship. So there's all sorts of ways in which I think this is really interesting for Edelkron. I think it's very interesting for users, and I'm really hopeful that we start to see it roll out in a wider uh, sense across the film industry. I'm not quite yet at the point where I'm willing to buy a 3D printer myself uh, or even try and talk the school where I teach into buying one. But if more stuff like this happens, I honestly could see a situation uh, where it starts to seem more interesting to have one around because they're super cool. All right, and then our final story this week comes from Lion Down Under, and I am not going to do the accent. And it's from Digi Australia, which is sort of an interesting accessories company. And they made a couple of accessories, literally just called the accessory mounts, and they're for the Ronin 2 and the Free Fly Movie. And I wanted to talk about them because they're like, they're, they're these like small little bits. I thought they were really cool. So let's say I'm working on a gimbal and I'm just going to keep using Ronin by default here because I've worked with the Ronin more than I've worked with the Movi. Uh, although Movi, you, you were first and you had that amazing video with the taxi cab, so respect. Um, but I'm working with the Ronin and I've got a camera to balance, right? And balance is a big part of it because if everything is in balance, then the motors don't have to work as hard to keep the camera stable. But if I'm too front heavy, then that motor has to work to hold the front of the camera up because it's on a fulcrum and that's going to burn through your motor faster which is a maintenance thing but it's also going to burn through your batteries faster which can be really annoying on a shoot day you want your situation in balance which generally means you know you're working with like like you're throwing a red on there you're throwing a alexa mini on there and then usually you know because those bodies aren't very heavy you you're trying to get away with like a lightweight prime like a sigma cine prime or something However, sometimes you need a zoom. Sometimes you want an Optimo. Sometimes you need a zoom with fo focus iris and zoom motors, fizz motors on there. Or, you know, you're shooting a whole show on the uh, Master Primes. Master Primes, very heavy primes. So you're out there with like 135 millimeter Master Prime or 150. I don't remember the long Master Prime, but it's a heavy ass lens. And that's part of it. So that's making the whole camera really front heavy. And so you need it to be heavier in back. Now, a lot of people are like, oh, well, we'll put a battery on the back. But the thing is, is in the front, you've got a little more room. But in the back of the Ronin and the Movi and all stabilizers, you usually have an arm that's like holding the camera up. And so you can't go too far physically back because you're going to hit that arm. And that arm overlap is going to cause setup problems and it's going to limit your tilt range. You don't want to do it. So usually you don't even use a battery on your camera when you're using a Ronin. The Ronin itself has power that can tap right into the camera and keep the camera powered. So you're not worried about that. Um, what you want is you want a way to add some counterweight, but you don't want it to extend back from the camera. And ideally, you don't want it to be attached to the camera. And the reason you don't want it to be attached to the camera is because what's going to happen a lot on shoots these days is if you didn't rent enough camera bodies, which most of us don't, even if you rented two camera bodies, 
what tends to happen is an old school DP would be like, all right, let's turn two camera bodies and one will be in the Ronin and one will be on shoot. And that'll let us move back and forth between setups really quickly. But what happens is the director is going to want both cameras on the Ronin shoot. Like, oh, one will be in the Ronin and the other will be on a roof and a long lens. And then when you move out of a Ronin setup, the director will want both camera bodies pointing at the scene. So you're always going in and out of a Ronin and you want to go as quickly as possible. So bolting a bunch of weights to the Ronin doesn't seem ideal because you want to be able to grab that Ronin the camera, get it out of the Ronin as fast as possible and get it back on a tripod or on, or on your shoulder. And especially if it's going on your shoulder, you don't want a bunch of extra weight on it. So what Digi Australia did is they designed these accessory mounts and they're very smart because they strap not to the camera, but to the body of the stabilizer. So there's arms on either side of the camera that are part of the stabilizer that like clamp down on the camera and the weights bolt to that. And then they stick backwards uh, right behind it. So like on a run and they clamp to those little oval uh, up and down rods and then they stick straight back. And then they've got a bunch of threaded holes in them where you can mount weights. You, they also have little adapters. So you could put like uh, the MDR, the the device that receives data for your focus. I resume controller. Most focus. I resume systems have some sort of box that's getting that data back. Um, usually when you're working in Ronin or uh, Movi, you're working with like a, some sort of wireless video system, like a Teradek. So by doing with this, you've got a tear, you've got a place you can mount your Teradek and all of it is designed so that it is counterbalancing those heavy front lenses, but they're doing it without extending the camera any further back. So that you can sort of dial it into the length of your camera. And uh, it's just a mounting place for all of those exterior uh, accessory weights and stuff to make it a, a more usable situation in the more realistic situation we're in more and more often where people want to put a zoom lens on there, where people want to use heavier lenses. There was a while, I think, in Steadicam and Movi work where the habit was, all right, well, I'm willing to make sacrifices in my image when I move to that. All right, well, I'm going to shoot most of my movie on... X lenses, but I'm going to take out these lenses for Steadicam work, and I'm going to accept the fact that they don't cut together quite perfectly. But DPs and directors are really moving towards a place where they're like, I would like to shoot the whole thing consistently on this set of glass. And that means running heavier lenses on a, on a Mophie or a Steadicam so that if those heavier lenses, the lenses you've been using on the rest of the show, or physically larger lenses, and this is a way to do it to make it easier. Uh, the company is Digi Australia. They're from Hobart, Australia. Um, and uh, yeah, it was very cool. I was emailing with them a couple weeks ago and I thought it was really interesting. So I wanted to talk about it on the show. All right. So continuing on our Professor Hay segment, where instead of people asking me questions, I ask you guys questions. So last week I asked about like, why isn't there one central app that can control all the lights? And I was, and I discovered Luminaire and Luminaire is an app that is like, you know, very popular on iPad. I actually discovered it because I just didn't, uh, there's a great BTS video uh, that I just wrote about that I will include in the links for a really fascinating music video for The Drive by everyone you know. And um, they use Luminaire to control all the lights. But what's interesting to me about Luminaire, first off, I didn't know about it when I talked about it, when I talked last week about my goal. But also, when I'm, like, emailing with a manufacturer, like, talking about one of their apps or saying one of their apps is frustrating or whatever, the answer I always get is, we're revising our app or we're working on our app. It's always our app. What's interesting to me is how come manufacturers aren't emailing me, we're working on Luminaire support. Luminaire support is coming. So it hasn't become dominant enough yet where it is the the default platform that everybody just assumes that you have to work with. And that's what I want. 
So uh, hopefully it becomes Luminaire. Uh, I don't know anybody at Luminaire. If anybody from Luminaire is listening, you should totally say hi. I will tweet this at you, and and um, maybe we can talk, and, and we can talk about how to find a way to make it so that the default assumption is not that manufacturers all need to build their own app, but the default manu- uh, assumption should be they all start working with the app that exists. And, you know, from its website, it seems very robust. Um, all right, so this has been another week in the Week in Film Tech. Tonight, this is June 20th, and tonight I am host moderating a panel at Adorama Inspire with a production company founder and a business uh, journalist and the founder of Endcrawl and the founder of Hive Lighting. So that's tonight at Adorama Inspire. If you're in New York, check out the Eventbrite. It's in the email. Maybe there's still tickets available. And, um, yeah, I'll be moderating a panel. Please subscribe wherever you subscribe to podcasts. If you know other film nerds who don't listen to the show, please tell them about the show. Uh, sign up on the email list, and I will send out... You know, all I ever do is send out a link on Thursday being like, new episode is up. Here are links from that episode. Yeah, Week in Film Tech, June 20th, 2019. I will see you guys all next week. Bye.